Good morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Godwin. I'm one of the associate pastors here at South Shore Baptist Church, and I have the privilege this morning of opening up God's Word with you, and we will do that shortly. And this past week, I was thinking about my dating relationship with Jenny. It's kind of a random thing to think about, I suppose. I was thinking about it. You know, one of the things that I realized in every dating relationship, there's a distinct transition from idealizing one another to reality. You go from this fun, happy, she can't do anything wrong, to all of a sudden realizing, you know what, she's just a human being just like yourself. Now, I remember really well the time Jenny and I went from A to B, made this transition. In fact, I remember the exact day it was our first little fight. And it was on the dance floor of all places. We were salsa dancing. Now, you need to know a couple things about Jenny and about myself before I continue with the story. Jenny grew up as a dancer. She took lessons since when she was just a little tot, and I, I didn't. <laughs> Jenny is a natural dancer, okay? So the music starts, and she just starts moving to the beat, and, and it looks really good. She, she doesn't look stupid, but I do. So there I am in the middle of the dance floor with Jenny, and I'm trying to keep up with her. I'm trying to avoid stepping on her feet. I'm trying to get the steps right because, of course, I'm supposed to lead, and, well, as you can imagine, it was an epic fail. So we start to argue a little bit, and she wants to keep trying. And I just want to leave. I just want to go get a drink or something. But I decided to stay, and we kept trying. We kept communicating. We kept pressing into each other and working together, and eventually we figured it out. In our culture today, it seems like our natural tendency, our, our default setting in our society is to pull apart, it's to come apart, it's to do our own thing. February is Black History Month, which of course reminds us that race, unfortunately, has pulled us apart. Divorce and avoidance and silence and abuse have pulled apart families and marriages. Of course, we know that religion and politics pull people apart too. Now, the church isn't immune to this disease. And I'm not just talking at an institutional level. I'm talking about relationships within the church. We move towards certain people and we move away from other people. We dare not call it favoritism, Certainly not hatred. It's just personal preference. But if we examine our reasons carefully, if we really look at our motives, we might be surprised by what we find. We might find our reasons for this kind of separation, for saying yes to one person and saying, well, not right now to another person. We might find those reasons to be completely godless. Didn't Jesus die 
to destroy all the walls of hostility between Christians? Didn't Jesus die to create one new family, one people of God? The church? He absolutely did. But why then do we see disharmony within the church so often? A kind of disharmony that we often see outside the church. You know, maybe a more important question for us this morning is, how do we truly become one as a church? How do we truly become one as a church? We want it. We desperately need it. Jesus died for it. How does it happen? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. We're going to finish out this chapter. And while you turn there, let me orient you to this passage. It's, it's page 1071 in your pew Bibles. We are in a unique part of the gospel of John. The cross is looming for Jesus. And so he gathers up his disciples and together they have this long extended conversations, chapters 13 through 16. And Jesus is preparing his disciples, not only for his cross, but for their own as they will embark on their mission. And then in chapter 17, he closes the meeting in prayer. And that's what we see here. And that's what we've looked at the last couple weeks. First, Jesus prays for himself that God would glorify him as he goes to the cross. Then we see that Jesus prays for his disciples, the apostles, that God would protect them as they're in the world and as they're about to embark on their mission. And he continues to pray in our passage. So let's read together John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you, you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved, as loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we are trusting in the power of your word to do something in our hearts. We are trusting that you would speak to us, that you would minister to us, that you would transform your people this morning. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this passage is a pretty complex passage. There's a lot going on in this passage. We're not going to be able to tackle everything. I'll, I'll tell you that right off the bat. The passage is kind of like a beautiful tapestry of interlocking threads. And what I want to do in this passage or with our remaining time is pull at three of these threads. 
Okay, three of these threads that weave together to form this tapestry. That's what we're going to do. Let me give you the first thread. The first thread is oneness with one another. Jesus prays for oneness with one another. I'm going to spend most of our time together with this thread. Now, verse 20 begins by showing us who Jesus prays for. Every future generation of believers. Look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. That's a reference to the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. All people who believe in Jesus through the proclamation of the apostles' message, that's who Jesus is praying for. So before us this morning, we have the very words of Jesus praying to his Father with authority for you and for me. Isn't that incredible? We have the words of Jesus in prayer for this church documented here in John chapter 17. Jesus was about to endure the cross, but we see a part of his heart is focused on our future welfare. We see in this passage Jesus' deepest concern for South Shore Baptist Church. Maybe we think his deepest concern is that we would be effective in our mission, effective in our evangelism. Maybe we think our, uh, his deepest concern for us uh, is for more spiritual growth or for more spiritual knowledge. But what does he want? He wants unity for our church. Three times he asks his father that we would be one. Look at verse 21. That all of them may be one. And then verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. And then 23, I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity. In other words, to understand what Jesus expects of our unity within this church, we need to understand the unity that is between the Father and the Son. So what does the unity of the Father and Son look like? This is a really, really big question. It's kind of like asking, how is it possible for Jesus on one hand to be fully God and on the other hand to be fully man? You know, you you start thinking about it, you start talking about it, and your brain kind of explodes. It's really hard to wrap our minds around this question and the answer to this question. People have been struggling with this question for hundreds of years. In fact, there were huge councils that were convened in the early church that wrestled over this very question. How is the Father and the Son How are they one? Of course, I've only got about five minutes here to explain. So here we go. One way biblical scholars describe this father-son oneness is to talk about a divine dance. Perichoresis, that's the word. Now, you've seen ballroom dancers. It's like, you know, professional ones especially, it's like they're one when they're dancing. It's incredible. The more you dance with your partner, the better you can anticipate their moves, the better you can see what they're about to do, the better you dance as a unit. And if each partner is doing their job well, you make the other person look really good, right? Now, the father and the son, they are perfect dance partners. Even though they are distinctly separate 
persons. They work together in unison. Look at chapter 17, verse 4 and 5. Jesus says, I have brought you, Father, glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me. This is a theme all over the Gospel of John. It's a beautiful theme. The Father seeks to glorify the Son. The Father seeks to put the Son on a pedestal. The Father seeks to make much of Jesus. And the Son seeks to do the same. The Son seeks to make much of the Father. The Son seeks to glorify the Father. The Son seeks to put the Father on a pedestal. You know, it's like the father is constantly saying to the son, no, 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 you first, son, you go first. It's all about you. And the, and the son is saying back to the father, no, 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 father, you first. They are constantly putting the other first. And in so doing, they create this beautiful dance that the world gets to witness. They are one in purpose, like-minded in their mission. They are one in love, constantly giving to one another, constantly making space for the other to thrive. And this is what Jesus tells us our unity should look like. The Trinitarian life of love and like-mindedness. He is praying in this passage that South Shore Baptist Church would be a church marked by our love for one another. A love that constantly makes space for others to thrive. A love that seeks to promote others. A love that seeks to partner together in gospel mission. Brothers and sisters, this is radical. This is a radical oneness. It can't be experienced anywhere else on earth except in a church, according to Jesus. And for us, that's South Shore Baptist Church. This is our school of dance. You know, I think we experience bits and pieces of this unity in our church. Every summer, our church comes together to put on this gargantuan ministry project called Vacation Bible School. And you've seen, you know, the, the, the whole um, sanctuary is transformed. And everyone pitches in from the youngest to the oldest. We all work together. We all come together to serve kids and bring the gospel to families. It's an incredible thing. And what an awesome demonstration of our unity. You know, there's also that closeness you feel sometimes when you meet a Christian for the first time. A few weeks ago, our church hosted a preaching conference for over 30 pastors um, in the area. We've had pastors come around from uh, Maine and Rhode Island all over the place. And by the end of the week, I felt like I had just made four or five new best friends. I had just met these guys. We feel this extraordinary surge of affection sometimes when we meet fellow Christians for the first time. And sometimes it's even stronger, that bond is even stronger than with people in our own biological families. But of course, we don't always experience this. Sometimes we stumble on the dance floor. Sometimes our experience within the church is more fragmentation, pulling apart, than unification coming together. There's a lot of obstacles in our way. One is proximity. We live all over the South Shore, right? It's hard for us to naturally run into each other. Another one is, um, you know, we value independence and individuality. We, we value our privacy. 
It's hard to jump into each other's lives sometimes. We, we, we like boundaries. <laughs> and we're all so very busy. It's hard to make time for one another. Besides all of that, we don't always like each other. We don't always want to partner together in gospel ministry. We'd rather do our own thing. We say things like, let's just agree to disagree. Really? Let's just agree to disagree. Now, sometimes that statement is helpful. I know that. You know that. But you know what? Sometimes I think we use that slogan to sidestep our responsibility for oneness. We, we go our separate ways. We say, I agree to disagree. We throw in the white towel and we do our own thing instead of coming together and seeking out and pressing into unity. I think Jesus is praying for more than just agree to disagree kind of fellowship. He is praying that we live this Trinitarian life. He's praying that we press into each other. And that might mean difficult conversations sometimes. That might mean awkwardness and and, and, and uncomfortableness in our relationships because we are working towards unity. That might mean even working through past pain in our lives, in our hearts, bitterness in our hearts. But isn't the peace that comes on the other side of working through past relational pain and difficulty, isn't that worth it? According to Jesus, it is worth it. Here in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for unity in our church. He is praying for strained friendships in our church to be one. He is praying for broken and hurting marriages in our church to be restored and unified. He is praying for splintered families in our church to find resolution and peace. He is praying for growth groups and ministry teams and lay leadership and elders and staff and all of us together to be one as the Father and the Son are one, an incredible radical oneness. Now, what if husbands and wives... What if we felt this deep concern for unity and we pressed a little further in our marriages? We endured just a little bit more in our marriages for the sake of unity. What if families resolved to press into this Trinitarian life a little bit more in their home life rather than avoiding each other, rather than nurturing suspicion and mistrust? You know, it's easy to hide in our relationships It's easy to avoid someone because you're angry or bitter or hurt by them, of course. It's easy to move away from people you just don't like. But what has God called us to in this passage? What is Jesus' deep concern here? God has called us to dance together. All of us, regardless of our personalities, regardless of our ages, regardless of our race, regardless of our socioeconomic backgrounds, regardless of our political affiliation, regardless of whatever, Jesus has called us to dance together, to be one. So here's some practical considerations. Let me give you some exhortations here. After the worship service, try lingering here rather than dashing off into the wind. Try having some conversations, maybe with people you don't know, in our church body. Join a growth group. It's a place where hopefully some of this unity can happen. 
Invite someone over for dinner this week, maybe someone in this congregation that you're trying to get to know better. Say a word of encouragement to a friend. Pray for your enemies. Move towards someone you just don't like. Brothers and sisters, God is calling us to press into one another as a church family in love. That's the first thread. That's what we see here that Jesus prays for. Unity in the church. It's patterned after unity in the Godhead. But how in the world do we accomplish this? We see the vision. The vision is glorious. We want that. But how do we accomplish that? That's the second thread. Second thread is oneness with the apostles' message. Oneness with the apostles' message. Look back at verse 20. Jesus says again, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. My prayer is not for them, that's the apostles, alone. I pray also for those, that's us, who will believe in me through their message. What does he pray for then? The believers, future believers, the future church, us, and the apostles. That all of them, all of us together, apostles in past history and us today, that we may be one. The apostles have a message. What is their message that we ought to be believing? Look back at verse 8 of chapter 17. Jesus says, For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. So, so the Father, Father gave a revelation. He gave the gospel. He gave words to his son Jesus to proclaim and to be witness to in his life, in his miracles, in all of his actions. The, Jesus, uh, the Son of God, is meant to proclaim the words the Father has given him. And then the Son passes on those very words, that same gospel, that same revelation to the apostles, his disciples. And what do his disciples do? They take that same message, those same words, and they proclaim it to us. So Christian unity begins with uniting around the gospel, the apostles' message It begins with that message about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. So the gospel is kind of like the music that keeps our dancing going. It keeps us moving and keeps us moving together. It's that rhythm, it's those the the, the beats. It provides the rhythm, it provides the beats so that we can move in sync together. Now here's one misstep that I think sometimes we do on the dance floor. We think this call to unity is a call to institutional unity. You just got to get the right pope, and you're good to go. You got to get the right denominational structure, and you're good to go. But that's not what we see here Jesus talking about. He is not interested in institutional unity. That's not the music. We need gospel unity. We need people who are transformed by the gospel. We need people who are thrilled by the gospel. And we need to be celebrating this, of course, together. You know, I don't think denominations make Jesus sad. Maybe a little bit. You know what makes Jesus really sad? Churches that don't proclaim the gospel. Churches that don't hold to and proclaim 
the gospel. That's what kills unity. This is the great unity destroyer. People hearing different gospels from different churches. Now, you've heard the mantra, doctrine divides, Christ unites. You've heard that before? So many churches have adopted this mantra. And what they end up doing is jettisoning the gospel, dumbing it down, simplifying it, cutting pieces of it up, taking it away, all in the name of unity. And yes, I believe that Christ unites his church. I absolutely believe that. That's what he's praying for here. But how do we see Jesus doing that? We see Jesus doing that through gospel doctrine, not apart from it. Do you remember the birth of the early church in Acts chapter 2? What a, what a neat story. It's the day of Pentecost, so the Holy Spirit falls upon God's people, upon his disciples, 120 of them gathered. They're scared. They're gathered in, in this room. They start to speak in all these different languages. Peter gets up. He preaches his first sermon. God moves in the hearts of his listeners. 3,000 people convert to Christianity. So the church moves from 120 scared people to 3,120 people, someone in, in the spotlight in Jerusalem overnight. And Luke, the author of Acts, he then describes this early church. In chapter 2, verse 42, he begins by saying, They devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. That's the first thing he says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Of course, then, they had everything in common. Of course, they had great and deep fellowship. They first devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. If you want to be united with other Christians, it begins with holding fast to and celebrating the gospel and the great Christian doctrines of our faith that stem from or come out of the gospel. Unity doesn't come outside of it. It comes through it. Now, you and I, we know that this is not easy. It's not easy to do this, to accomplish this kind of unity through doctrine. Sometimes it feels like our doctrine pulls us apart, right? We get into theological arguments. But I think Jesus is telling us in these verses that unity happens through our wrestlings over biblical teaching. What this means is honest, robust, involved, iron sharpens iron kinds of conversations. Those are the kinds of conversations that lead to unity. So theological wrestling is crucial. And brothers and sisters, if you've got wrestlings in your heart over the gospel, over Christian doctrine, let me just encourage you, don't avoid those wrestlings. Don't avoid it. Dive into it. Dive into it with brothers and sisters who love you and who love Jesus. But don't avoid it. Is it going to be hard? Yes, absolutely. But it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. So we've seen so far that Jesus prays for the church to be radically one and that oneness is patterned after the Father and the Son. We've just seen that the beginning of this unity is oneness with the apostles' message, oneness with the gospel itself. And now we see perhaps the most vital thread to this whole tapestry of unity. Notice that in our passage, Jesus talks about oneness with God himself. Look at verse 21. 
second sentence. May they also be in us. And then verse 23. I in them and you in me. And verse 26. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. You know, this, this, this idea of oneness with God, it reminds me of something that Jesus said earlier in chapter 14, verse 23. You don't have to turn there. Let me read it for you. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Now watch this. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Do you hear that? What does it mean that Christians are one with God? It means that when you become a Christian, the Father and the Son, they take up residence in you. They make their home in you. Jesus takes up residence in you. He moves in and he tells his Father to move in too. This is stunning. This is incredible. I mean, think about it. The God of the universe, the God who... With just a few words, bang, creation came into the existence. In just a few words, the God who holds the stars in the palm of his hands, this transcendent God takes his residence in you if you are a Christian this morning. Now, some of you may be listening to this and wanting this unity, wanting this love, desperately wanting it, but you know what? You don't really know the Father and the Son. This new dance with God, how does it begin? It begins with believing, accepting, cherishing the gospel, which is that Jesus came to die for sinners. That's how it starts. Something intensely spiritual must take place in our hearts and lives. God must bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Do you remember Jesus in in John chapter 3? You must be born again. You must be born again into new fellowship into this new fellowship. You must be born again into this father and son oneness, this new fellowship with God. So before we can dance with others in the church, we've got to learn to dance with the father and the son. And only then, only then the father and the son can lead us and model for us this radical oneness that we can experience in the church. Father and the son show us the right steps. And this means... Our fellowship with God is the foundation for our fellowship with one another. The real test of church unity isn't so much whether we have the right systems, the right church government, even the right leadership. Those things are important. The real test of church unity is the church's spiritual condition. It's closeness with the Father. It's closeness with the Son. Thomas Manton, he was a 17th century Puritan. He described it like this. The union of the saints when they are together depends on their communion with God when they are alone. You hear that? The union of the saints when they are together depends on their communion with God when they are alone. So when we're faced with disunity and anger and bitterness and pain in our hearts towards someone, when we're, when we're faced with 
um, difficulty in our relationships. It's so easy for all of us to ask questions like, what's wrong with them? Why can't they be more humble? Why, why can't she be more easygoing? Why does he have to be so stinking demanding? That's a bad place to start. We need to start by putting the magnifying glass on ourselves, by asking the question, how is my fellowship with God the Father? How is my fellowship with God the Son? How are my steps with the Father and the Son? Let's begin there. So it's not just this common gospel truth that unites us. It's a common life in God himself that unites us. We share in the life and the love of the Godhead. It's an incredible thing. So we've seen three threads now that run through this passage. Jesus prays for oneness with one another, patterned after the Godhead. Jesus prays with oneness with the apostles' message. The beginning of our unity is trusting, believing, celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then now we have just seen that Jesus prays for oneness with God himself, a common life that we all share in God and that we live out together. So, what happens when South Shore Baptist Church is marked by this kind of radical oneness? Twice, Jesus answers this question. Look again at verse 21. He says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then look at the second sentence in verse 23. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus' concern here isn't just for a unified church. It begins there. It starts there. And and we all know we get so much benefit from unity. We love it. We enjoy it when it happens. But his concern here is for our church and for the world. Our corporate dancing tells the world something they don't know. Our radical unity tells displays the worth and the beauty of Jesus. And the world is confused about Jesus. The world is really confused about Jesus. The world thinks that Jesus was a great teacher. Maybe he was a prophet. The world thinks that Jesus is just a a wonderful example of right living. Jesus, as we know, is so much more than that. As time goes by, we're going to see the world splintering further and further apart. We're going to see society continuing to be devastated by violence and hatred and corruption and racism and divorce and all other kinds of things. So the question for us this morning is, will we be that church Will we be that church that offers something radically different to this helpless and hurting world? Will we be the church that displays the worth and beauty of Jesus Christ through our love for one another? Will we be radically united for the sake of the gospel going forth on the South Shore? That's our question 
for this morning. You know what? Unity on earth, unity in this church, it's not the end of the story. Our church can dive deep into unity. Marriages can get stronger. Growth groups can thrive. Our staff, our lay leadership, all of us can act as one. We can all love each other and even see God bring a massive harvest. But one thing remains true. Perfect oneness can't be achieved on this side of heaven. Perfect oneness with one another, with God, cannot be achieved on this side of heaven. And this is what Jesus is getting at in verse 24, where we will end. After asking for the third time for complete unity in verse 23, look at what he says in verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Listen, Jesus knows that true oneness and complete unity, it happens when we will be with him, when we will see him face to face. The word here for see is better translated immerse. So Jesus' second request to the Father is for future immersion into the Son, future immersion into Jesus' glory. I don't know what that means fully, but man, it's incredible. Jesus wants us to be one with one another. He wants us to be one with the Father and the Son, but he knows it's not all going to happen now. So listen, the world can't offer true unity. The world can't offer real, lasting, deep, meaningful unity. The church, we can see glimpses of unity here on earth. But it's only when we're with Jesus himself face to face will we truly enjoy the fullness, the richness, everything that God has planned for his people to experience in Jesus and in the Father and with one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is true and deep and meaningful. We thank you that your word has presented for us a massive vision of love and unity, Lord, and Father, we confess to you that we are not good at this. We, we strive for this, but there's sin in our hearts. And so we confess to you that and we pray for your forgiveness. And Father, we confess to you too that we love Jesus. And he brings us before the foot of the cross. And before the foot of the cross, we find a new unity with one another. So, Father, keep us at the foot of the cross. Father, help us to press into this unity. Help us to endure with each other. Help us to bear up with each other. Help us to love each other deeply and truly. And, Father, we long for that day. We so long for that day when we will be one with you and one with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.